Coming up on Magical Medical Tour with my co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman, and special guests, Katie Ortlip, RN, and Jana Beecham, author and editor, sharing their recent book, Living with Dying. What is hospice? What are the myths? Learn about this amazing book that will benefit all. This and more coming up next here on YHTV. This week's episode is brought to you by Support the Mountain's Herbal Parasite Cleanse. This formula targets the small and large intestinal tracts and larvae, the most broad-spectrum formula available today. 100% organic, formulated by Dr. Mikio Sanki, author of the Esoteric Acupuncture Series. For 10% off your first bottle, visit shopyogahub.com and use the coupon code CLEANSE at checkout. Hello and welcome to YHTV's Magical Medical Tour. Thank you for joining us today for Living with Dying, a complete guide for caregivers. I'm Christina Suzuma, and with me is our wonderful medical guide and co-host, Dr. Glenn Woolman. Hello, Doc. Greetings, Christina, and greetings, everyone. <laughs> Welcome to Magical Medical Tour. I am Dr. Glenn Woolman, and I will be your medical guide along with Christina today as we travel through yet another quadrant of the healthcare galaxy, searching for optimal health. Christina, it's, it's very clear that we're all going to die, right? Um, speak for yourself. Uh, no, no okay. just kidding. <laughs> that, I should have realized that in preparing for this. I should have remembered who I was speaking to. Most, <laughs> most of us are probably going to die. And, and today we're going to find out that that may be the easy part of life because there are certain people that fall into the position of being a caregiver either voluntarily or by a simple twist of fate quoting the Nobel Prize winning songwriter singer Bob Dylan today we're going to be speaking with Katie Ortlip a registered nurse and a licensed uh, clinical social worker who's an expert in hospice care and she's also an author of many books, including the book we're going to be talking about today, Living with Dying, A Caregiver's Guide. We're also going to meet her editor, uh, Jana Beecham, who has also written many books, edited many books. We're going to be talking about that. Uh, and uh, they're both lecturers, and they're teaching the rest of the world how to deal with the dying and be a caregiver. So before we meet them, Christina, how do people get in touch with us? I think there's going to be a lot of people that want to know more after we have this talk. Oh, I would think so. One of my favorite subjects here. Um, at any time during the show, you can feel free to ask a question or make a comment simply by scrolling down on your screen and typing it into the comment box. And, you know, this can be a month, a year, two years later, it doesn't matter when you watch this show. Hopefully the sooner the better and uh, hopefully you watch it several times as it's going to be so filled with information. Um, and if we will get your message to our guests or to Dr. Woolman or myself and we will make sure that you will be answered. And another way that you can uh, reach us is by calling 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK, and be sure to leave your contact information as well. Thank you so much. Thanks, Doc. Oh, you're welcome. So uh, there's so much to talk about today, and we'll we'll find out about Katie Ortlip and Yana Beecham as we move through this. So welcome, ladies. 
Thank so much. You. Great to be here. Christina, Glenn. Hello, hello. Welcome. Thank, <laughs> Thank you for you. honoring us in our community. Great. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, Katie, the first thing I want to mm -hmm. ask you, it's a, it's a kind of a double question. I know that families and cultures around the world have always cared for the elderly. The grandparents moved in, mm -hmm. uh, the family, the kids, the grandchildren, everyone takes care of everyone. Why has this become such an issue? And what mo motivated you to write this book? Well, I think, you know, people don't live as close together anymore. So many of my families, their kids live, you know, back east. They're, they're, they're busy with their work. You know, both, you know, both uh, parents have to work these days. And so that, that, that household where you know many generations stayed in this in the house that's really a thing of the past and um the reason Jana and I wrote this book is because I've been doing hospice work for 25 years and I found myself repeating the same things over and over again there's so so many myths out there about dying the dying process about hospice about the use of morphine about hydrating people at the end of life. You know, those are examples where people just have so much misinformation and fear and anxiety. And I always felt there should be a practical um, handbook that's really easy to use when you're in the trenches caring for someone that you could just open up and see bullet points and see shaded boxes. And there's it, it not a lot of writing. It's very user-friendly. And um, Jan and I have been friends for quite a long time. And when her father was dying, I was her um, social worker. And so I talked to Yana a lot about death and dying over the years. And um, when her father was dying, I talked to her about this book, and she said, "Well, let's do it together." And she had the she had the writing skills, so we we got together and started working on this book uh, five years ago, and we finally finished it this past summer. It was a long project and really a labor of love. Excellent, Yana. You wrote or co-authored uh, something called the best Christmas pageant ever. The musical, oh. <laughs> yes. right? How do you go from the best Christmas pageant ever to living with dying? Um, <laughs> That's a good one. Yes. Um, that is, well, you know, it's kind of a relief to transfer from writing a, uh, a musical about kids, you know, wonderful kids. That, actually, they're called the Herdmans, and they're the worst kids in the history of the world. But... Um, <laughs> So it, it's uh, you switch a different hat, but um, the it's nice to go back and forth to have a, a you know a happy event you're working with, and then something that you know digs a little deeper into your own personal life. Since I bring to this book the caregiver side, I was a caregiver for my dad, and now I'm a caregiver for my mom. So it's nice to have a little break to go to uh, Musicalville. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it's, it's interesting. I know that any question that I'm going to ask Katie, I can count on you to edit if we don't get it right. Okay. <laughs> uh, and Katie, so you mentioned a couple of minutes ago myths mm -hmm. of dying. Mm -hmm. give, us a, give us an example of something like that or a few. Well, I think that the body knows how to die itself. And there's there's stages of labor that the body that the person goes through when they're dying, similar to labors when when there's a birth, mm -hmm. and 
And so people don't understand that, that as, as someone gets closer to dying, unless it's a sudden death, of course, you know, from a heart attack or something, but as someone gets right. closer to dying from a disease or heart, you know, heart disease, cancer, um, whatever the, 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 the disease or condition is, a few months before they die, they start sleeping a little bit more and, and then eating a little bit less. And maybe they start withdrawing from the world. Not They don't watch TV anymore and get quieter and they don't want to see as many people. So their circle becomes smaller and smaller. And as they get close to dying, they don't want to eat at all. And it's the body's way of shutting down. So people would, you know, most caregivers would say, well, you're not eating. You have to eat. You have to eat. And that's the instinct is to feed someone. But what we've learned about dying is that you don't want to force someone to eat. You want them to listen to their body and honor what their body is doing. So so you don't force them to eat. You let them take what they want. And then they stop eating. And then the last few days, they stop drinking. And we don't want to put in IVs and hydrate people because it would end up causing more problems. And so the body knows what to do, but we just have to respect it and support it and honor that. And you're bouncing. That's good. And, um, <laughs> oh, yes. and so, so that's, that's a myth. People don't understand the dying process. They think something's wrong. You know, we have to intervene when we just have to really have an understanding and really honor what the body knows how to do. So that's one of the, that's me. one of the myths is how that's we die. A, that's a good one. And it's yeah. interesting because, uh, I have a, an uncle, he's my last living uncle, and he's uh, right in the stages of dying right now. So uh, this is very important to me. And and one of the things he just said to me the other day, I asked him actually if he felt like he was dying, and he he actually said not yet. But mm-hmm. he has he has no desire to do anything, and he doesn't want to eat. And I held back mm-hmm. from saying you got to eat something, but I don't think I did it for the important reason that you just mentioned. I just mm-hmm. did it. Yana, you you just edited National Geographic Science Encyclopedia, so you must have an incredible amount of knowledge with all the things that you've edited. Uh, what did you learn from editing this book? Oh, from this book? Um, yes. Well, we, we kind of not, not just edited, but wrote it. With and wrote, I'm sorry. Yeah, and sorry, I, uh, because uh, the book chronicles um, my journey with my father, Mm-hmm. And through the six, basically the six months of of caregiving for him and working with hospice to, uh, uh, that he was when he was on hospice, and um, so th- the entire book is a lesson for me <laughs> because mm. it it really is I, essentially I represent the reader, so the reader who got thrust into being like you said a, a caregiver with, just by a twist of fate. And who ha- is untrained and knows nothing. So our journey began on the book and with my dad. At the same time, we we I started. I was a, a lunatic caregiver, running around, <laughs> not knowing what to do, frantically going from doctor to doctor, <laughs> my dad in and out of calls, trying to get him to be tested, and all these things. And and um, Katie was the Zen master who lived next door to me. And um, <laughs> when we. When we, when he finally was put on hospice by his doctor, it really all—it's just like the light came on, and um, Katie essentially uh, walked me through what a caregiver, how to be a caregiver, which is 
you know, there's a lot of details. There's the actual facts and the what you should do. So I learned all that. Um, but there's also how to actually really be a caregiver. And Katie is, by nature, she was born to be uh, a caregiver. She, I mean, I don't mean just taking care of someone, but when she goes into the room with people, who are facing a limited lifespan, I, I watch her and they transform. I watch everything that she does. She sits really close to them. She talks to them. They they know that they're the center of the universe. And so watching her and writing, so just you asked what I learned. So being with Katie, I, I learned by watching her, you just need to let your loved ones know that um, you have time for them. And the other lessons I learned are all about that the body really does know how to die itself. And it was really comforting to find this out, that all the things that are happening are actually right. They're for a purpose. They're the machine shutting down uh, in a right way. And if we don't interfere with it, it should be okay. <laughs> so that's, what, that's my lesson. <laughs> So it seems like the two of you have had a very interesting time together. It's been educational and emotional and social, very poignant. Have you two made a secret pact that you're going to be the caregiver for the other if one goes first? Yes, absolutely. Yeah, yeah especially Katie. We know the I'll drugs we're going to use. Um, <laughs> the, the thing is, who's going to die first? We keep having that argument. Well, yeah, so we might have to do it together. Yeah. You, well, you can you, always what, whatever Katie decides. You could edit it. Right, that's it. Well, no. she, she has promised to take me to the light from the very beginning. From practically the moment I found out she was a hospice worker, and she mm. told me that today was a good death after she'd helped somebody to the light. I said, "That's it. I'm going. Katie's going to make me have a good death." Whatever Beautiful. that takes, Katie. Yana, Yana was one of those Beautiful. rare friends who really loved to hear about my work. Because as you can imagine, when people ask me what I do, and I'd, I'd say, oh, I, I do hospice work, there'd be a silence. Like, don't come near me. <laughs> and and Yana loved to hear about my patients and my experiences, and um, which was great for me because, you know, I, I love talking about my work. Mm. And, uh, yeah. It's so, good. It helps. It helps to, it's also a way of relieving Mm -hmm. the process and you know getting through it we always did that in the emergency department uh, obviously a lot of people died and we would have yeah. these like a, debri a debrief a debriefing, yeah, a debriefing. Where we could mm -hmm. get through things so you've mentioned hospice and palliative care what's the difference well palliative care is the broad is is com palliative care means comfort care so it's a very very broad so anyone when we all should be having palliative care um so people who are having treatment let's say they're having chemo and radiation and they're having lots of symptoms from that they can be receiving palliative care from a palliative care team to control pain nausea you know whatever symptoms they're having um but, but hospice is a type, it's a more specific type of palliative care at the end of life. So hospice care is palliative care for the about the last six months of life when you are no longer having aggressive curative treatment and um, you basically want to stay away from doctors, you want to stay out of hospitals, you, you want comfort, quality of life care, most people want it at home. So the hospice benefit 
is for people who have approximately six months or less if the disease runs, you know, its usual course and they're not seeking any more aggressive treatment. And so there is a team of people, there's an interdisciplinary team of nurses, social workers, chaplains, spiritual care. We have lots of great volunteers, music therapy, massage. Uh, and the whole point is to really help people live as well as they can until they die. So to me, it's really more about living. And, mm -hmm. um, you know, when I first meet a patient and family, uh, my first question is, how, what are your goals or wishes at this time? And, and to really understand what, what they're wanting for the, the time they have left. And, you know, the goal is to try to make those things happen or, or try to help them, uh, you know, have control, basically have control over, over what time they have left. So palliative care is much broader and hospice is a, is a specific type of palliative care for the very end of life. There are lots of, um, as you said, myths about certain things. <clears throat> one of the things, my, my mother at one time was on hospice care and then started getting better and went out of hospice care. Yes, yes. Uh, we, call them we call them graduates. <laughs> yeah. But then you can go back in. It's not like, well, you yeah. left us once, we're not going to take you back, right? Yeah, we well, that happens actually probably uh, two or three patients a month we, we discharge because they, they get better. And sometimes they get better because of good hospice care. And oh, I nice. think there have been different studies done that show hospice as, actually prolongs people's lives because they're happier and they're more comfortable. And so they, they want to live. You know, they, they start eating better. You know, the pain's better controlled. They start eating better. They, they live longer. Um, but, yeah, we, had a, we have a patient now. She's 102. And she was on hospice when she was 94, and then we had to take her off. And now she's back at 102. Yay. So, yeah, she outlived her prognosis. <laughs> That's great. And her doctor, probably. Yeah. Oh, yeah, I'm sure. Probably yeah. quite a few of her doctors. Uh, I want to spend a, a minute or two on the actual patient that's dying and then i want to get into more of the the meat of your book which is taking care of the caregiver uh, is there anything that you've learned either of you have learned in working with death and dying that would uh benefit those that are dying i mean really the whole book would benefit those who are dying because you know the caregiver to me, when I meet uh, with a family, I, I give the caregiver as much attention as the patient, sometimes even more towards the end, because we, we rely on that caregiver to give good care. And, and I think when the patient knows that their loved one is getting support and is coping well, they are happier because most people don't, do not want to be a burden. They're so afraid of being a burden to the people they love. And that's one of their biggest worries of what, is what they are doing and their illness is doing to their loved ones. So I think by, by knowing their caregiver, is, is more relaxed. I mean, this book was really meant to decrease the anxiety and fear of everybody, but the caregiver having knowledge and information and support, their anxiety just, just diminishes and the patient can feel that. So the quality of time is so much richer because instead of being filled with anxiety and fear, it's filled with love and gratitude and, I mean, all those wonderful things that, that, make life great, you know, that, that give our lives meaning. And um, so in the book, I, I, I just think it's as much for the patient, even though it was written for the caregiver, it, mm -hmm. it will help the patient have a better quality life and death. Also, I, I would say that um, we have a chapter called How We Die, and it's, 
it's nice to know, I, 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 like I said, that there is a system. And my, as an example, my mom read the book, and before that, she didn't want to talk about anything, any death preparation, any. What do you want to do? Do you want to be buried? Ah, oh, you, you figure it out. I don't want to talk about it. But once she read the book, now she's really kind of embracing everything. She uses terms we have in the book. She. She donated her body ahead of time to MedCure, which comes and, you know, they come and take the body and then, and it's, um, you don't have to, it doesn't cost. They'll send the ashes back after they've used what they need. And uh, so I think just knowing that there really is a system and not just a series of unfortunate events that are going to surprise you is comforting. <laughs> yeah, that, that is important. You know, it, there are a lot of people that dive very well, people that are grounded and have spiritual uh, mm -hmm. practices, but there are some people that don't die very well, or the yep. the person dying has uh, dementia, and they start acting out, and they're mm -hmm. not in their normal place. They may not even recognize the person who is their caregiver, who might be their son or daughter mm -hmm. or someone else. How, how is that different than, how are the two different for you? No, it. And, and it's true that people understand that not all deaths are beautiful and peaceful, that death can be very hard. It is like labor, and some people's labors are really difficult, and the labor of birth, and some people who die, I mean, some deaths are very, very difficult. I think most of most of my patients have died very peacefully, but there have been some that have died very, you know, from having seizures that, that just came on suddenly or something internal happening that caused intense pain. So what we do is we really need to start where the patient is and where the family is. So, you know, we may have a family where there's a lot of turmoil, there's a lot of unfinished business, um, a lot of spiritual pain. And it's not my job to go in there and tell this person how to die. I need to sit with them in, the, with their, in their pain and I need to be with them with whatever they're feeling. And I think by when they develop trust and they start feeling safe with me, they're able to start sharing more um, because there, there's a lot of fear, and and there there is a, you know people do have a lot of unfinished business, and we we if we do have the luxury of time, maybe we can help them come to terms with some of that. Maybe maybe to make some amends with people they've loved and and express words of forgiveness or or words of love to people that they haven't. Um, I mean, my hope is that there will be growth at, during this time. That there is opportunity for growth, but with some people. You know, it, it just doesn't happen, and and but I think we need to be present with them, and you know, have that hope that maybe there can be some wonderful things that happen. And with dementia, um, we do use drugs, and I think drugs definitely have their place. Some people, some people with dementia, and even some people with just who don't have dementia, sometimes there's something that we call terminal agitation. Maybe a few days before they die, the person gets agitated or anxious. And it's almost like they have this this feeling of um, this sense of urgency because they feel they're dying, and sometimes you could your presence can calm them. But there are times that we we do use medications because we have lots of great medications, and people with dementia, if they get very agitated, we'll use medications to help them calm. We can use music, we can use touch, uh, and and some people with dementia, which is this is really neat, is that some people as they get close to dying, they have periods of lucidity. Or maybe mm -hmm. for a few moments, they they actually say something that they and they have may not have talked in years, mm. and they may come out and say, you know, to their son, you know, I have to go now, or and it really is wonderful for the family when they actually they kind of break out of that that 
dementia for for some a few moments and are and are clear and, and that that I see that happening sometimes. You mentioned um, music and massage. Mm-hmm. What about humor? Oh, humor's humor's the best. Yeah. And how how do you deal with that? Well, again, I start where the family is. I, you know, right away, usually within the first few minutes of meeting a family, I can kind of tell, you know, you get a lot, you can learn a lot just from the walking in their door and seeing what's hanging on their walls or what's important to them. What what do they have near them? What do they have photographs? Do they have what kind of artwork? And, but, mm. you know, if, if a family uses humor, you can really, you can see that right away. And I, I use, I match my humor to their humor. If a family is very solemn, I'm not going to go in there and, and, and act all cheery and, and happy. I start with them. I'm very, very, just very respectful. And then, you know, then I start using humor. I may put, put a little humor in and kind of test them. And I don't even, I'm not aware I'm doing it. It's kind of instinctual because mm-hmm. I, I like to make people relax. And once they, once they laugh a little bit, then they just, everything just softens. So I use humor, but I, I'm not sure exactly how I do it. It's just something I do. I do it. And then, and then when, when I get a smile, I mean, there was one patient, I saw her for weeks and weeks and she was serious. She was very depressed. And I think by the third, by the fourth visit or so, I got her to smile and I, I felt so good. And then on, on the next visits, she, we, you know, we had start having these great times with each other. She was very wounded. She had been a drug addict. She was dying from this awful cancer. Um, she had a very difficult time dying and we, we used music with her. We had a harpist come in and play to her. And nice. she burst out sobbing, and she started hugging the volunteer, and then she went mm-hmm. to a completely peaceful state. So there was something in her, and that music caused this huge uh, catharsis, and and it was just wonderful. I mean, something you know, she had been wounded from from many years earlier, and sometimes we never know what it is, but it's just, it's just giving unconditional love and support and just showing up. I mean, I just keep showing up. Even, even if I feel they don't want me there, I just sh- keep showing up. And usually, um, you know, th- there's a trust that develops. When in, uh, the world of medicine, uh, we, we work with, uh, people that are dying all the time. What do doctors and other healthcare professionals need to know about what, what you've learned? Both of you have learned. I think the first thing they really need to do, and I'll start first, then Yana can, can go because she's been more <laughs> in it with her family. Yeah. I think they really need to first is sit down and just listen. Because so many talk times, and I know doctors, don't, they don't have a lot of time these days, but they walk in a room, you know, let's say the patient's in the hospital, and they stand at the edge of the bed with a clipboard. They don't even look the patient in the eyes. I mean, just sitting down, just sitting down on their level is a good start. And, mm-hmm. and really listening to what the family and the patient want. Like, what are your goals now? What are your wishes now? And really listening. And and I think that's that alone would be um, would be really a huge would be a huge um, benefit. I want to hear what Yana has to say, but uh, I know that the two of you go around and are giving seminars to many people. You've been on television, number of places. What's the what's the biggest question that Doctors ask you. Um, sometimes they have questions about hospice care because not I, I, I do hospice work and they know that. So sometimes they have questions about how to talk to people about hospice. And we, we did a talk uh, a few weeks ago about yeah. how to how to talk to a family about hospice, how to present it to families because there are like again about the myths. There are a lot of myths about hospice and and so doctors they 
they have a hard time talking to patients about um, end-of-life care. And so for that reason, we get a lot of late referrals. And I feel that people could be could benefit from hospice a lot sooner. So the biggest question they really uh, they want to know how to talk to their patients about hospice care, how to present it to them. So it's not as frightening and, and more acceptable. Yeah, I, I would say uh, uh, I went with my, my husband's uh, brother died of lung cancer, and we went to the doctor on his last visit with her, and he was trying to ask about hospice, and she was just really not wanting to talk about She said, well, that's your decision. I mean, it, that was his first time he'd mentioned hospice. So she didn't even talk about what it was and what it would do for him. And she just was really cut and dried and didn't, like what Katie said, didn't listen. And I, I think I think that's a discussion to talk about, that it's, um, you know, how just like Katie says, ask how do you feel, want to live now? What, what are your goals? Are there things that you'd like to do right now? Those kind of things are hopeful. There, that's a mm-hmm. hope that people, they, then that gives them reason to get up tomorrow. I've got something I'm going to be doing. I want to go see the coast one more time. I want to go uh, visit my uh, grandchildren or whatever it is, or take a cruise. Uh, whatever it is, the, it, it, I think doctors are just afraid of, um, there's a leap, there's a leap that they don't seem to take. And I noticed that my, my own, my father's personal doctor was wonderful, but she was on vacation when he first got ill and everybody all they did was quickly write a prescription for opioids which made him loony and falling down and and uh and didn't help his pain in the end he his bone mets uh were really causing pain and it wasn't until we went to hospice and Katie suggested we cut back on the opioids which were making him be afraid of his recliner and exit through the fireplace uh <laughs> he was doing all these wacky things and i thought well he's got dementia just happened and hit like wham but then, then katie katie said why don't you back off on the opioids and and give him some um uh i'm oh, sorry i blanking on it advil um and it was kind of like a miracle suddenly he was back and and he wasn't in pain, so I I feel like that there wasn't no time was taken to know who he was or exactly. I, I'm just reaffirming what Katie says, <laughs> and also there is a system that we talked about with the hospice chaplain, not hospice, but chaplains at the local hospital, and the advanced directive is a great conversation opener that had, leads towards all of this. Uh, there is an advanced directive in. I think every state. And when my, when my father was diagnosed with, you know, bone cancer, we sat around with advanced directives, my husband, myself, my mom, and my dad. And we all, it, we had a discussion. It wasn't him on the hot seat answering these questions. Do you want tube feeding? It was, how would we feel if, and, and uh, our advanced directive in Oregon has a lot of questions, more than just tube feeding and uh, artificial hydration. But, um, who you would like to have as your uh, health care spokesman uh, speak for you when you can no longer speak. And uh, that opened the door to everything. We were able to talk about where do you, would you like to be buried or cremated? Or um, how do you see, if you want, where would you like your ashes spread? All of that. We all went around the room talking about it. So it, 
it really, I think the advanced directive is something a doctor could do to uh, start that conversation, or at least help families start that conversation. Yana, when, when, all, when all of you are talking in the room and helping people with advanced directives, are there kids in the room? And my, my real question is, at what age should we start talking to children about death and dying, and should they be brought into the conversations? What are your thoughts on that? Um, I Katie, Katie's probably better at answering this with young kids, but you know, my children, we talk about it all the time. It's really a comfortable subject to talk about now. So, um, and mine are in their twenties, but when we started this, they were just in their late teens. So, uh, I think it feels good there. Katie, what do you think? Well, my kids have been hearing about death and dying from the pipe. <laughs> I remember my daughter when she was five years old, I was terrible at doing her hair and she'd always, I'd do her hair and then she'd take it out, you know, and she said, mom, you're not very good at doing hair, but you're really good at helping people die. I think she was about five years old. So, wow. um, well, wow. they say that, that people, you know, 18 years old, you should do an advanced directive. Of course, most 18 year olds don't think about it, but they could be in a car wreck and, uh, mm-hmm. it's really a gift to your family and loved ones to, 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 to have all that stuff documented because when something happens suddenly and people are, your kids are arguing or they, they say, well, but I didn't know what mom would want. I don't, you know, I don't know what to do. I don't know if she would want this. It's really hard for the families mm-hmm. to make that decision. And they, they just, uh, they can just, you know, agonize over it. Um, but what's as important as having the documentation is also having the discussion because you could fill out an advanced directive and have a couple friends sign it and tuck it into a drawer. But if you haven't talked about it with your loved ones, they could still argue about it. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really think it's just good to to op- you know just open up that conversation. And then I find that um, with families I work with, I may go into a household and there could be a lot of tension. And I, I bring up you know what their wishes are because it's something I feel we need to do when we put someone in hospice. And usually once the, the patient starts talking about it, I, there's just a big sense of relief in the room. It's like no one really wanted to start the conversation, but oftentimes once it started, people are like, okay, yeah, we just needed someone to kind of push us to do this. So there's just a lot of fear, and there's a lot of fear, and people are so afraid of worrying and scaring each other. And, uh, you know, there's that, there's that book that we, we had um, talking about death uh, doesn't kill you. And I think people think, well, if I, we talk about it, if we start, then it's, we're going to somehow, we're going to die sooner. Mm-hmm. So it's like, keep it, people want to keep it out of, out of sight, but it's, it's always there. But I have we, to, we all, if I may, it, I think also like in the Asian cultures, mm-hmm. um, you don't talk about death because it is an omen. And mm-hmm. so they okay, try to keep it away. Like, mm-hmm. oh. you know, don't give someone white roses and things like that. You know, it, it's because it's an omen mm-hmm. to say that then you're almost opening the door to wish for mm-hmm. it. So I, I do believe the new generations are starting to change, but uh, boy, I still know the ones that will will not say a word about death. <laughs> that, is, that is a good point, and we do need to respect cultural norms because sometimes we do have patients like um, I can't think of the exact culture now. I don't know if it was Native American or, but there was one. There are or but there, there have been cultures where the children said we don't want you know, our father or mother to know that they have this disease. And so we do have to work with them because I think people know it. They, they, they know when they're ill. People know that when they're dying, some people don't want to talk about it. And even though I may feel that they should talk about it, it's not, it's not my journey. It's not my death. And so, you know, we will, may have a family that, that 
we will call to come out and they say, well, my mother doesn't know that you're from hospice. Um, please don't tell her you're from hospice because she'll give up hope. So I say, okay, I, I won't call it hospice. I'll just say it's comfort care. I'll, I'll just tell tell her everything about hospice except that it's hospice. <laughs> and, and so I will tell the patient, we're here to help you stay home. We're here to help you live your life the way you want. We're here to help you have the most control that, that you can. And usually they love all that stuff. So, but, you know, what, what we've discovered, if if people don't make these have these conversations, since we started writing this book, I think we've met like five families that I could say right off the top right now, who because it wasn't talked about, they they had this moment at the bedside, which we actually even call it in our book, the battle at the bedside, where the, there's been a caregiver in place, generally one of the children, let's say if it's for a mom or a dad, and suddenly the other at the end of the patient's life that everyone else flies in and they want to do stuff and whatever it is. And, and suddenly the battle begins. It's because no decisions were made. No one said, you know, if I stop eating, don't force feed me. Don't, uh, you know, and, 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 and just give me very little uh, water to, if I'm not drinking just for comfort. Um, those decisions, if they were made in advance and shared, like Katie said, shared with the whole family, that battle wouldn't happen. But these people who've had these battles at the bedside, they say, you know, the day I lost my mom, I lost my entire family. We haven't spoken in years. Um, so, and that's really common. I mean, the fact that I can say I've met five people who just happened to mention that, um, it, it really is, shows how important it is to do this and talk with your family about it sooner than later. So I'm, I'm really interested. I mean, you were mentioning about families and how you're working mm -hmm. with families mm -hmm. um, and energies in the room. I've mm. seen or been uh, involved in situations where um, the, the husband and wife know exactly what they want, mm -hmm. but not the kids. And these are adult children mm -hmm. and they're totally against what the the person and the partner has spoken about and wants it. How do you deal with that? Well, if they live in the same area, if they live locally, I, I try to have a family meeting, um, which can be really hard because sometimes family members don't don't want to come around. They, they don't want to, they, they, they deliberately stay away because it's just too uncomfortable. But I really try to bring everyone together and and have the, the the patient and his wife or the patient basically uh, share what what he or she what their wishes are, and because I, I try to I try to always go back to the goal because most people their goal is they want to stay home, they don't want any aggressive measures anymore, they don't want to life they don't want life support, they don't want to be resuscitated, and they want control over the time they have left, and they want to be comfortable, and they want to spend time with their loved ones. So once the kids hear this goal, these goals then usually they can come around because then we think, well, how do we make these goals happen? And so most of the time with some discussion and sharing, and I think people need to be heard. So if, if there is a someone in the room is disagreeing, I will listen to that person. As a matter of fact, if there's someone in the room who's, who seems resistant to hospice or resistant to what the patient wants, I really try to focus on that person and give them a chance to be heard because um, otherwise they get defensive. 
So it's it's just really, and then if they're out of out of the area, I sometimes I ask permission if a patient says, "Well, my daughter in New York is is calling me and she's giving me all this, this she's giving me all this this stuff about why aren't I doing this? Why aren't I doing that?" Sometimes I'll say, "Well, is it okay if I call her?" And if I have the patient's permission, I may call and just introduce myself as part of the team and just kind of a open ended discussion about, "Well, what are your concerns?" Uh, and then. Sometimes I can have discussions with the family and help them understand. Um, from a hospice point of view, from my experience, sometimes they're willing to listen. So I, I, I try different approaches depending on, um, you know, what the family is, what they bring to me and what their family system is like. And, and what if the patient at this time is not coherent? Mm-hmm. Um, you, then know, you know how you see then the it's much more difficult. The bedside yeah. in front yeah. with, with the patient there, mm-hmm. the most uncomfortable of them all. <laughs> you know? and, and, you know, ho- hopefully they did an advanced directive. I mean, that's just the great thing when they have an advanced directive. But then I ask, you know, who has the legal authority to speak for this person? And mm-hmm. if they have an advanced directive, they've assigned someone. If they don't have an advanced directive, then there's an order. You know, the spouse would have the first say. Mm-hmm. And then if there's no spouse, it would be the children. Um, of course, if the children don't agree, well, then again, you know, you have to bring them together. I had a patient in the hospital, I think he had muscular dystrophy or something really painful. I mean, he was mm-hmm. having lots of spasms. He was in a lot of pain. I, I think he might have even had a feeding tube. And he was really ready to die. And he was he, he was expressing it. But the family was saying, well, maybe, you know, maybe he has some dementia. Maybe he's not really thinking straight. And so the kids were, were battling. It took us a few days of working with chaplains, with the doctors. We, we, had, we had a whole team working with these kids, having meeting after meeting. And finally, they were able to, to they all ate, were able to come to the same place and allow him to die. But it, it, was, it, was, it was hard on the patient because he was still getting hydrated. He was still having tube feedings, you know, and um, they finally came to see that this this wasn't the best for him. This is, was not the kind of life he would have wanted. So, mm-hmm. we have to explore. What would your father, what was he like when he was well? What would, it, what, what, what would he have wanted this? I mean, you really have to, to work with them, and it's exhausting. Mm-hmm. I mean, those days, working, working with families like that is totally exhausting. I just want to go home and, I don't know, go out into the woods and scream, you know? It's, it's, <laughs> it's so... So stressful. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, Katie, you said sometimes when the fights start that you ask them all to leave the room and have the discussion outside. Oh, we of the don't. Room. We don't have it in front of the patient. No, we don't. Even if they're comatose and like, no, absolutely not, because they could hear. We have to do it in a whole separate room. Right, the right. patient should be here. Should not be hearing all of this. Mm-hmm. It's and very so upsetting. Often I've been in situations where. It's it's right in front in the same room yes. and the rooms are so small and you know. can you move it outside and and they don't move and it's like uh, you, oh. have, you have to find a good room where it's comfortable I mean you can't be out in the hallway either if it's in a hospital setting you have to go to a nice comfortable room where people can sit and and there's a lot of listening and there's a lot of exploring and it, it, it it's and some people storm out and then you kind of let them go and then they come back and. Fortunately, this doesn't happen very often. I find that most people are really reasonable, and most people really want to do what's best for their loved one. I mean, most people really do. So, it, it's communication. You know, communication early on is the key. Yes. You know, yes. that's, that's really the key. Yeah. It's the early on. I think you make such a good point about having those conversations early on. And, and like, uh, yes, even with my own child, I think he's been to more funerals than most of my friends <laughs> 
More funerals than weddings? <laughs> More funerals, yeah. It's like, oh, another one's gone. Okay. <laughs> Who is it now? <laughs> and they can be joyful occasions. You know, you can, they could be really wonderful. Oh, um, yes. Yes. Okay, <laughs> it's because it is, a, it is a beautiful, it is a beautiful moment to have someone release. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So, um, uh, now you, we were talking earlier about myths. Mm-hmm. Ah, so you gave us one, of course, that is, uh, you know, um, basically allow the person to, to the body knows and, and you shared with us, you know, allow us to honor that. What is another myth that you can share with us that? Well, there are myths about hospice, which I mentioned earlier that, that, that prevent people from accessing hospice care sooner because you can have six months or less to go on hospice. The doctor needs to document that, but you can also be on hospice longer than six months. We don't cut you off at six months. We've had patients for one or two years even because they're continuing to progress. Uh, mostly people with chronic illnesses like heart disease, they're continuing to progress the illness, but wasn't as fast as the doctors thought, or maybe because they had such good hospice care, um, they were living longer. Um, so a lot of people think that to go on hospice, you have to be at death's door. You have to be, you know, within days or maybe a week of dying and that you have to just give up and, you know, that's it. No more, no, you know, no more hope. Um, and I think there's nothing farther from the truth. I, I really like, I think hope is important. Even when you're facing death, I think it's important to have hope and you could always have hope for something. And so I ask patients what the, what they're hoping for and, you know, I think you have to keep hope alive. And some people say, well, I'm hoping for a miracle. I'm hoping that I'll get cured. And we don't take that away. Uh, so I think the the first myth is that you, you have to be actively dying to go on hospice. And no, you can go on hospice much sooner. You can talk about your doc. You can talk to your doctor about hospice early on. Even if you're not appropriate right away, I think it's good to get the information. And another myth, the one I mentioned, that you have to give up hope and you have to talk about death and that it's just this kind of gloomy, depressing process. And I'd like people to know that we hospice workers, we really like to laugh and we like to have fun. And we come out and we just, you know, we focus more on living than dying. And we ask, how do you want to live? Not how, you know, we may get into talking about how you want to die, but it's really how you want to live until you die. So it's really a very positive, hopeful um, program. We don't come in and put people on morphine and kill them. Uh, there's that fear <laughs> too. We just drug people up with morphine and they die and they get really goofy and nutty and they, they get incoherent. Yes, we do use morphine. It's a wonderful medication, but we titrate it to the need of that particular patient. We only use it if they're, if it's needed. We don't just give out morphine to everybody. And that morphine can be taken for months and sometimes even years before someone dies. It's mm-hmm. not just a death drug. Mm-hmm. And so there are a lot of myths about morphine too that we we have to teach people about mm-hmm. um, that you don't yeah, get the cancer. Oh, sorry, people think that they have cancer and and you have to you can't go on hospice unless you have cancer. Well, that's another myth too that it's only for people with cancer. Mm-hmm. We have a lot of our patients don't have cancer. They might have heart disease and stage dementia, Alzheimer's, and stage Parkinson's you know, emphysema or lung disease. So any any end-stage disease, if the person is no longer wanting curative, aggressive treatment, and the doctor feels they have approximately six months or less, they can, they can be eligible for hospice, which is paid for 100% by Medicare. 
and by Medicaid and by most private insurances have a hospice benefit. And then uh, I think most hospices, as with our hospice, if people don't have insurance or they can't pay, we don't deny them care. So we, we, we take care of people no matter what, of uh, all, different also, ages, you know, all different ages. There's one more that I think that I've heard a lot. Um, people think that hospice is a place. When, when my brother-in-law was dying, his wife said, I don't want him to be sent away. And mm-hmm. um, we, in our valley, we're just building a, a, a place that people can go, a hospice house. But, um, but in our valley, right, uh, and mostly uh, hospice comes to your house. Mm-hmm. Yeah, most or- people want to die at home. And most of my patients do die at home. And if they can't, we can provide care in nursing homes, in assisted living facilities, in adult foster care homes. So we can go to facilities, and now we're going to have this lovely hospice house, which has been greatly needed here. Um, but most people want to die at home, and we really try to make that happen. You know, I have to work cl- closely on caregiver plan. If they don't have a caregiver or a family, we really have to try to come up with something. And that could be a real challenge. Um, but I just try to find whatever resources I can to make it happen. Mm. But, you know, there are myths, too, about the end of life, about hydration and food, which I mentioned that when people die, they do get dehydrated. Dehydration at the end of life is not painful. And people say to me, well, they're going to get dehydrated. They're going to starve to death. And they really need to understand that, that that's the natural dying process. They're not, gonna, they, they're not hungry. They don't want to eat. And that by forcing them to eat, you're actually going to make them more uncomfortable. So we have to, you know, we have to do a lot of teaching and education on just to correct some of these um, some of these mis you know misperceptions that people have. Now, now, what's interesting to me is is um, being in hospice at home. That's one mm-hmm. thing you have a lot of control, and and mm-hmm. uh, you know you have the caregivers or the family and the love around you. But I find um, it's a little more difficult and more resistant at hospitals. Mm-hmm. Because they have a specific way, as you say, the intravenous and the tube, the feeding tube, and mm-hmm. it, it's it's almost like, um, but they they've though they've got these tubes out of them, and they keep testing them every day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, you know the blood test, and I'm going, why are you testing? <laughs> like, mm-hmm. why is this happening? Um, it, it's uh, do you feel that we're lacking in the hospital system? I think it's beginning. It's beginning. Beginning to get better, at least here. Uh, we do have hospice patients that die in the hospital sometimes because mm-hmm. someone may come in because they've had a, a major stroke and all of a sudden they're dying, and they, they just can't take the patient home because it's everything's happened so quickly and the the patient is just it, it just would be it's not re, uh, you know realistic to take them home. They can have inpatient hospice in our hospital, mm-hmm. and then we we change everything. We go in, we write the orders. We say no more blood tests, no more. Don't take any more vital signs. Stop the hydration. We bring our harpist in to play for them in the hospital. We encourage the family to spend the night there. We we bring in, you know, we bring in all kinds of things to help make it, uh, 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 encourage the family to bring in things to make it a sacred space, whether it's the patient's favorite blanket, they can bring their pets in. So when, when we have a patient dying in the hospital and they're on hospice, we, we really um, take over and try to do the best we can to make it their own sacred space, even though it's in a hospital setting. And so we, we stop all of that stuff. Uh, so, and some hospitals have hospice rooms. They have rooms specifically for, for someone who's dying there. Um, so we've come a long way as far as, you know, helping people die in the hospital better. But mm. 
But really, I, I think it's ideal to get them out of there. Because yeah. <laughs> just the energy there, the energy, you know, it's, it's, it's pretty, can be pretty frenetic. I, I, I agree. I agree. It's, it's, um, but it just seems to me very interesting when, when, um, when, as you say, talk about the hydration and, uh, so often I see them on intravenous, but, and oxygen and mm -hmm. their mouths are completely wide open and so dry and parched mm -hmm. and nobody even thinks of swabbing or, you know, yes. or even the movement. Yeah. I, I had run into ones uh, before where the family was told that when their loved one scrunches their face, that means they're in pain. Mm. And that's when they should give more pain meds. Mm -hmm. And I said, well, if you laid there for two hours <laughs> and not moved and we kind of shifted you and you're, you know, in fully intact and you're not unwell, wouldn't you be uncomfortable? <laughs> I would be, you know. So it's it's little things like that that I'm 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 curious. I'm very curious. Um, you with a RN background, you know, mm -hmm. um, what kind of training do these um uh, nurses and these uh, attendants what kind of training do they sometimes have sometimes they have very little that's why our book which here's our book it's quite lovely um, <laughs> to get it. our book has a whole middle section on how to take care of someone uh, very specifically how you know how to position them how to do good mouth care because uh, this is, book was written for a person who really doesn't know what they're doing. You know, we have family members who have no clue. They've never been caregivers. And it's amazing how much they can learn in such little time. But this book was meant for people like that to just a step by step by step guide. But many caregivers from agencies and in nursing homes, they, they could they could use this book, too, because a lot of them don't have that training. Right. Yeah. This but actually Katie, is a great book. Uh, living with dying. Hi. I, Hi. I, uh, uh, I came back from the dead. <laughs> Thank you for bringing Ooh. me back. You know, this this really is a a great handbook for people, and I recommend it to everyone. If you had to uh, distill it down to maybe three to five tips for the caregiver, what what would your top five be? Go ahead, Yana. Okay. Um, well, first I'd, I'd start with my first one would be start a notebook the instant all this happens. The notebook is, of course, I'm a list maker, but the notebook is great because you write down all the calls you've made, all the, um, you just keep everything. And when you're supposed to call back and what everybody said and who you're going to talk to a ton of people when you first start out when your loved one's ill. And it's good to have that. And not only just recording medical calls and things, it, it's good for making a list of, now this is t talking about care for the caregiver, it's making a list of what you need help with. And most people are afraid to ask for help. So that's a big giant tip. Be sure and ask for help. Uh, every single person will, uh, every friend of yours will, is probably saying, what can I do? And you'll say, I'm fine, I'm fine, I can handle this. But in reality, you probably could help with you. You may need to have a, an hour with them sitting with your loved one while you go do whatever you need to do for yourself. Uh, you may need somebody to help run errands. You may need someone to walk your dog, mow your lawn. I my kitchen is overflowing with dishes. Would you just help me wash the dishes? If you keep a list like this, and someone asks you, 
what they can do to help. Flip open your book, look at the list and say, well, here's three things that I need. Can I put you, your name next to one of them? Uh, th- that'll help you ask for help because that's really hard to do is ask for help. Um, and, and that nice. includes, sorry to inter- interrupt, but that also nope. includes um, getting hospice in sooner. Cause I think most of my families say, we wish we had gotten you in sooner. Why didn't we know about you? And you know, part of that's the physician's responsibility, of course. And part of it, you know, is people, people can pick up a phone and call and talk to us. They don't have to have a doctor's order just to talk to us. We need a doctor's order to actually start hospice care. But we get calls from people in the community that just want information, and I'm willing to go out and talk with them. Uh, I just think getting hospice, there's no reason if you are in your last six months of life and aren't seeking aggressive treatment, there's no reason not to have hospice. I, I just think it, 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 I've seen what we can do for people. And so that's one of my biggest tips is to get, you know, get help in any way you can. You know, through, if you're a veteran, there's, there's support through the VA for caregivers. Uh, if, you're, if you're low income, see if you're eligible for some Medicaid support for caregivers. Um, but I think, I think we, it takes a village. And I think as a community, we all need to be there for each other. We need to help each other, support each other, because we're all going to go through this, you know, like you said at the yeah. beginning of the show, yes, we all die. Even Christina. <laughs> we all, we're all going to die careful. someday. <laughs> so I say to my patients, when they're feeling bad, like, oh, I'm such a burden, you know, and I say, look, it's your turn. We're all going to be in your place someday. It's, all, it's your turn to get care. Someday it's going to be my turn. So let us help you and care for you. And, and we're, you know, I try to make it like this is a universal thing, and we're all we're all going to die, and we all need to help each other. Um, I, I would say, as another tip, Katie, that that um, that you had said was identify what really needs to be done and eliminate everything else. Because I was mm-hmm. frantically running around upset about my parents' house being a mess or whatever. <laughs> I was just being a, a lunatic, thinking I'll I'll clean up your house and I'll make some food and then I'll do this and do that. And in reality. When I pared it down, what they really needed was someone to essentially, before they went on hospice, take them to doctor's appointments or drive them somewhere that they needed to go. And the other part was just be with them. Mm-hmm. They yeah. just wanted me to be there and be there. You have there to let it go. It's a letting go. It's a real lesson exactly. in letting go. There are so many more tips uh, in this book. Uh, I would recommend that everybody really reads this. I want to talk for just a moment uh, about end-of-life ethics. Uh, In episode 100 with Sharon Hartline, we talked about medical ethics, but now we have dignity with dying in many areas. Mm -hmm. You have it in Oregon. We have it in California and a number of other states. But there are people trying to get rid of that. What are your thoughts on the ethics at end of life and how do you deal with families? It just happens that I I attended one of those just two days ago. I've been to maybe five or six of them. We support people's choice to use the law. And we cannot help. as, As a hospice worker, I can't help get the medications or give them the medications, but I can help support them. And I will attend a death if they ask me to for support. Mm. And what we what we have found is that the, all the all the concerns and worries that people had just haven't haven't happened. Um, people, very few people use the law, and most people who use it, in my experience, have been highly educated and have had no financial difficulties because they were worried that people would feel pressured to do it because of money or because their family members they were a burden. Most of the people that I've met who have done it, it's because they want control. 
um, over when they die and how they die. And most of the people that have done it have had cancer, metastatic cancer, that had gotten to the point where their quality of life was just not acceptable to them. And they didn't want to go through through the last well, month or two of, of increasing pain, um, in, increasing disability. And that was their choice. They're highly independent people. And the ones I've attended, for the most part, have been really, you know, quite wonderful spiritual experiences. And so I do, I do advocate uh, for this law. I, in the beginning, I did have my concerns about it too, but I have had now that I've had um, real life experiences with it. I see that it, I, I do think it's working. And it, it do, you, know, you do need two physicians to to authorize that the person you know is capable of making this decision. And there is a waiting period. So I, I think that there are um, guidelines that make it, you know, that that there are safety guidelines so that it's not being abused. Or misused. We did a show on this, actually. I don't remember the uh, the episode number, but we did a whole show on compassion and choices with the people mm-hmm. that were trying to uh, pa- help pass the law here in California. Yeah. Yeah. Before we before we end and we get to our health tips, is there anything that either of you wanted to mention that we haven't talked about a little bit that you think is really pertinent to uh, this? I don't know. We could we could talk about so much more, but now I feel that. I mean, I think this has been a great conversation. I think we've touched yes. on a lot of really important things. So I think we've done. It's been a really good, a good, a really good hour. Yeah. So and we do. I'll have leave a it at that. So if yeah. people wanted to find out more, excellent. So before your health tip, uh, one other question: Do you uh, see in the future uh, a sequel to this book? And if so, I, I think I have the title for you. Um, exiting through the fireplace. <laughs> Stay we'll dry. have to work on that one. <laughs> All right. Who want, I, I think because uh, Could I go Katie, first you should go my... first on the health tip. And, and you can edit it, Yana. Oh, shoot. Well, I've my... Got six, I, I'm, my computer's probably going to run out. But I'll join Katie down at the microphone after she gives the tip. How much power do you have left? Oh, anyway, I'll get back to. Oh, my health tip is actually very, very simple. It's so simple that people were like, "What?" And it's simply slow down and be present, mm. because caregivers are scurrying around. They're doing for the patient. They're giving, doing for the patient, doing for the patient. And the most important thing is just to be, just to be present. Make time to just sit with your loved one and just be present, because that is really what they need more than anything else. You know, let the laundry go. Let the dishes go. Um, just that time together is so valuable. And, and and people just remark about it later. Just the things that come out of their mouths when they're dying. Some of the wonderful, precious things that can come out of someone's mouths. The things that they're seeing. The things that they're experiencing. The, the, the people they're seeing in the room. The waterfalls. Mm-hmm. The visions they're seeing. I mean, you've got to take time to be present. And I think we all need to do that for ourselves. I mean, in general. Slow down and be present with with. You know, go out in the woods and sit still for ten minutes a day. We're too we're in too much of a hurry, and I think more important. I mean, so when you're dying, I think that becomes even more important when you're with someone who's dying is to be, take the time to just be present. So that's that my beautiful. Tip. Love that. Yeah. And and as your computer is dying, Yana, as we <laughs> care for, we caregive for you. What's your final health tip, tip before you go out on us? Okay, my health tip is. Um, and, and coming from a hair give, hair giver, hair, hairdresser <laughs> point of view, now caregiver point of view, I would say um, take care of yourself. You can't be a, if you want to be a good caregiver, 
you've got you've got to care for yourself first, just like in an airplane when you put on the oxygen mask before you put it on your child. And what I made the mistake of doing is when I started caregiving, I gave up everything that made me happy. And it, ru- it ru- ruined everything. I gained weight. I was a wreck. All these things. And and don't give up. Focus on what keeps you happy. Don't give that up. If you, if you have to reduce it, um, uh, you know, I, I used to walk for an hour with my friend. I now now if I need to, I'll make it a half hour. But I'm not giving that hour up that I gave up a long time ago when I was taking care of my dad. So I would say, yeah. take care of yourself. You don't give you up first. what you love. Continue yes. to feed yourself. Right. The things you love. Yes. Beautiful. Love Christina, you. any thoughts? Oh, so many, Glenn. You know that. This is <laughs> I know. <laughs> this has been such an amazing, amazing show. And and I love the book. Love the book. So we, mm-hmm. we're going to definitely have a picture of it, uh, hopefully on the site and a link to it. <laughs> and, you know, definitely encourage everyone to to go out and get this because it, it, it it's going to shift your life because we're going to run into it sooner or later in our lives. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, whether it be a loved one, a family member, uh, yourself. And it's, and the great part about this book, I have to tell you ladies is it's so simple. Uh Uh It's so (laughs) simple. You know, you you have books out there that, Oh my God, you read on and on. No, no, no. This is a step by step. You can, you can just scan through and go, Oh, I need to learn about this. Oh, Oh, what, you know, what happens? How, how do I give someone a bath? I mean, (laughs) it's so simple. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're so welcome. I have to tell you, it needs to be translated into different languages. Well, actually, we're start we're starting with the Spanish translation. That's our first one. <laughs> yes. <laughs> then we'll go into other languages. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank but you. Thank you, really, for gifting the community. Mm-hmm. That's amazing. Thank you. Well, thanks. It's been and great also, talking with you, both. Yep. We're grateful to our very special guests, Katie Ortlip and Yana Beecham, for sharing their wisdom, expertise, and experience with us. I'd also like to thank all of my teachers and healers for keeping me on my journey, and Yoga Hub, uh, Christina and Segovia, and all those that are watching and listening to our shows around the uh, globe. We hope that uh, we can get together with you again at another time to travel through the healthcare galaxy and until that time i wish you all optimal health and thank you katie thank, thank you. you yana for giving thank us you. with your great expertise <laughs> oh, <it's been> fun. <laughs> let's do it again yes, let's do it yes. again <laughs> and of course thank you dr glenn woolman for another great show um i would like to thank each and every one of you for joining us in this new platform of education and information we're grateful for your continuous support and we look forward to hearing your feedback on how we can serve you better you can connect with dr glenn woolman through his website glennwoolman.com where you can learn about the metaphor square breath or follow him on facebook at the medical guide Now, we really encourage you to connect with Katie Ortlip and Yana Beecham through their website, livingwithdying.com. And their Facebook is also uh, Living With Dying. Their Twitter, Guide for Care. 
And I do encourage you to pick up this book. <laughs> we hope that this moment on YHTV has supported you or a loved one in some way. And we invite you to take a moment to like us or subscribe to our YouTube channel. Share our information with others, really. And, um, you know, one drop is a thousand waves. And hopefully this message will continue to create waves out there in, on, the global, on the global scale. And uh, again, we're always, always grateful for any feedback, comments, suggestions, you know, do so um, on, on our site or give us a call at 818-LET'S-TALK. 818-LET'S-TALK. Until next time, namaste. Chronic pain, it turns out, has very little to do and very little correlation with uh, tissue damage. And it has more to do with uh, the brain mishandling the information, uh, either because of some genetic predisposition to pain or some early life predisposition to pain or uh, psychosocial issues. Uh, it's the chronic pain is more associated with brain phenomenon than peripheral phenomenon. Now there are obviously exceptions, and that is. Uh, patient.